This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is the 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, a stylish diary filled with radical historical dates from across the world. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary is a beautifully designed week-to-view planner where you can keep track of the year ahead. Alongside illustrations and book excerpts, it features significant radical dates from throughout history, including the English Civil War and Black Panther movement, through to the protests of 1968 and feminist emancipation, touching on the lives of revolutionaries such as Angela Davis, Rosa Luxemburg, and Martin Luther King Jr. The 2019 edition includes illustrations from Savage Messiah, Laura Oldfield Ford's brilliant psychogeographic graphic novel, as well as extracts from brand new Verso books, including Revolting Prostitutes, New Dark Age, and Paradise Rot. The 2019 Verso Radical Diary and Weekly Planner, out now from none other than Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is an unusual dig because I will not be conducting the interview. Instead, Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht will be. And the person who he'll be interviewing is Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez, a remarkable candidate for alderwoman in Chicago's 33rd Ward and a member of Democratic Socialists of America. Rodriguez Sanchez is the sort of improbable candidate running for local office who we need to transform the cities and towns that we live in, something that we can do right now, regardless of who controls Washington. These are also the sort of races that we need to win in order to build a deep left-wing bench from which we can ultimately wrest control of the state and federal governments. This is a bench that has been eviscerated over decades of neoliberal triumph, that pushed the left to the margins of American politics. Rodriguez Sanchez moved to Chicago from Puerto Rico, where the brutal austerity imposed on the island made her job as a teacher impossible. But she has brought with her to Chicago a radical tradition and a program to fight for the city's beleaguered public schools, for renters and for immigrant rights, and for a public safety agenda that prioritizes social workers over cops. Also, the transcript of this interview is up at Jacobin's website. And I should let you know that Jacobin is building a website for The Dig. One thing we want to do once that website is up is to make sure that there are transcripts for every single Dig episode. But to pay for that, we need your support at patreon.com slash the dig. Plus, a contribution of $5 a month gets you access to our weekly newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of left-wing books. Please, contribute what you can now at PA. T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Micah Utrecht interviewing Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. Rosana Rodriguez, welcome to the dig. Thank you, Micah. So you are running for alderman, alderwoman in the 33rd Ward in Chicago's northwest side, and we're going to get into that a bunch in a second. But first, can we just start by talking a bit about your personal story? Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and sort of the experiences that you had growing up where you're from that led you to this point? Sure. Um, So my name is Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez. I am from Puerto Rico. I am from um, a neighborhood in the east coast of Puerto Rico, a town called Umacao. Um, I grew up in this mountain that overlooks the sea. It's a really beautiful place. Um, And uh, my father was a community organizer. 
so I was always around people that were organizing. Um, I went to my first protest when I was six years old. And uh, we were protesting for water. We didn't have any water in my neighborhood uh, because there was a drought and um, the, there was a U.S. Navy base that was established in a nearby town called Seba. And they got access to our water, so our water was redirected to the base. And um, the other day I was asking my dad about this story again, and he reminded me that they were actually using water to fill a pool. <laughs> it was not even to cover the basic needs of the soldiers. Like, they were actually <laughs> filling out a pool and doing all of, of these things like with They were the swimming in the water that <laughs> you should have been drinking. So, yeah, so... Um, so my community organized, and um, we protested. I remember making my little sign um, with my dad. And at the end, after protesting and meeting and figuring out how we were going to solve the issue, um, some of my neighbors went uh, to the top of a hill um, where a, a, a pump was has been put, and they found that there was a valve that was allowing the water to flow in the direction of the base, and they shut it down, and then the water came back. <laughs> and, and, it was, and, and it was a revelation, right? It was like they took our water, and then we went and we took it back because it belonged to us. It, it, it was a resource that was for us. Um, so I learned that early, that you need to fight for the things that belong to you. Um, yeah, so I come from a community that is very well organized and that is the way that it survived the hurricane. Uh, currently, my brother, uh, his partner, and most of my family live up there. And the only reason why my community is still there after the hurricane, after all the devastation, is because 40 years ago, this community started organizing itself. And now it continues to be organized. And now there is a, a mutual aid project up there that is feeding the people and that is creating structures so that if another hurricane comes, we know that they're going to be able to survive. And I believe your brother's organizing efforts... Naomi Klein writes about them in her new yeah, book on she Puerto went, Rico, right? She went up to our neighborhood. Naomi Klein did sort of a tour around Puerto Rico. The uh, group of professors from the University of Puerto Rico invited her, and they toured around the island where communities are highly organized and are developing these mutual aid uh, projects. And she was able to go to my neighborhood and learn about what my community and my family are doing up there. And she, she talks about it in, in her book. So... You uh, you grew up in Puerto Rico. I believe you went to the University of Puerto Rico, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and you eventually became a teacher. Yes. And it was sort of through being a teacher that you eventually ended up coming to the United States. So can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like being a teacher, what grade you were in, and what, what all yes. that looked like? I, I've, I worked as a teacher several times. Uh, I am a, a theater, a community theater artist, so I was a, a drama teacher in Puerto Rico before moving to Chicago. Uh, before I moved to Chicago, I had been working in this school for almost two years. Uh, the first year that I worked there, it was it was bad. Like working in Puerto Rico as a teacher, especially in poor uh, communities, it's a, a really big struggle. Like everything that you use in your classroom, you buy with your own money. I remember being given this sheet where I was supposed to <laughs> to write the materials that I needed for my classroom. And you had to like do research and learn like how much does it cost and put it in this, in this paper. And I spent a whole day putting those materials there and then months passed and passed and passed and I didn't get anything. And then uh, one day I asked a teacher in the school, I asked her, um, did you get your materials? And she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, those materials that you put on the, on the paper. And she said, oh, we don't get that. That's just a paper you have to fill. I just put, like, pencils or something <laughs> because they're not going to give us anything. So I was a drama teacher, and I would go to the Salvation Army or the thrift store to get all of the costumes, everything I bought on my own, even the, the floor fans that were in my classroom I, I brought from my house, um, which was really hot. It was a coast, uh, coastal town in the West. And uh, so... 
for the second year that I was there, that's when Law 7 was approved. And Law 7 was a set of austerity measures in Puerto Rico. And one of the things that happened, they cut a bunch of money from education. And that also meant um, there were several austerity measures. And one of them was that they removed the cap on the amount of students that you could have per classroom. So for the first year, I was buying all of my materials, but I had an average of 20 students per class in a middle school. For my second year, um, when I started, I had over 40 students in my classroom. I didn't have chairs for all my students. Um, it was a disaster. I had students from 7, 8th, and ninth grades all together in a single classroom. At that point, I just realized that the purpose of me being there was not teach at all because there's just no way that you can teach in those under those conditions. It was, it was keeping students in a space, in a <laughs> keeping students from being outside. That was the only purpose of me being there. And I actually started feeling like I was going to become a real bad teacher. Like, I don't know how you teach under those circumstances. So um, I started looking for a job in the island. I didn't want to leave. I, I have always loved living in Puerto Rico. All my family is there. Um, and I didn't want to go, but... Um, when Law 7 was approved, the plan was to lay off 30,000 uh, government employees. Um, and they were able to lay off around 20,000 employees. So it was really hard time to find a job. And I started looking for jobs, couldn't find anything. And I ended up um, finding a listing through uh, an internet post for the Albany Park Theater Project. And that's how I ended up coming to Chicago. So you just said a number of interesting things there. I mean, one, some of the things that you described about teaching in Puerto Rico sound somewhat familiar probably to CPS teachers, for yeah. example, Chicago public schools teachers, mm -hmm. because uh, Chicago public schools teachers are often uh, buying supplies with their own money or, or teachers around the country, right? Like in Puerto Rico is probably a much more extreme example. Definitely. Uh, but, uh, and that, that came in part because of this colonial relationship that Puerto Rico has to the United States, yeah. as well as your first example about uh, how the United States military is just taking your water to do whatever they want with it. And so the, the, these are things that it sounds like uh, your, your life is sort of intimately connected to uh, the sort of twin uh, uh, phenomena of, of uh, colonialism and, and austerity uh, in the relationship between Puerto Rico and the U.S. For sure. I, colonialism is something that just marks you um, from very early, like understanding that Puerto Rico was invaded by the U.S., that our land doesn't belong to us, that we're a territory of the United States that we belong to, but we're not a part of. And that is constantly made clear that Puerto Ricans don't have uh, the right to vote for the president, but every decision that is made about us, like we don't have any participation in it. Um, something that blows my mind is that when I talk about not having water in my community and this water being diverted to a Navy base in Ceiba, this is a Navy base from where operations came to bomb the island of Vieques, which is one of our island towns. They were using water from my community to maintain the base from where the operations came to bomb the island of Vieques for military practice. Nobody ever asked for permission to bomb Vieques. They, this is their land. Um, they, they were using 80% of the land of that island town to bomb. <laughs> The rates of cancer there were incredibly high compared to the rest of the island. Nobody ever asked for permission for that. And you just, like, you grow up understanding that you are from a country, that you have a culture, that you're a nation, but actually nothing belongs to you. Um, so it, it is something that is, it's very critical in, in your development. Like, you just carry it with you. So you said that you moved to uh, the United States because you felt like you couldn't Basically, you were a teacher, but you couldn't be a good teacher anymore. You were basically doing a form of babysitting, it sounded like. Uh, what year was that? Uh, that was 2009 when I came to, to Chicago. And so how did that 
feel to come here? Did you have family here or much of a community no. here? Or? No, it was pretty traumatic. Um, I, I, I came from Puerto Rico alone and, um, and Puerto Ricans, I, I'm, I'm going to generalize here, but I feel comfortable doing so. Um, I live in Puerto Rico for almost 30 years, and uh, Puerto Ricans are always, like, on top of each other. Like, well, there's no personal space. That, that doesn't exist in Puerto Rican families. So I came here, and I was alone. All my family was there. All my affections, all my friends were in, in Puerto Rico. So it was a very difficult uh, first two years uh, living in Chicago. Um, and yeah. you came here, you said, to work for the Albany Park Theater Project. Yeah. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, when I got to Chicago, I started working with the Albany Park Theater Project. And naturally, I went to live straight into Albany Park. And uh, Albany Park is an immigrant community. So when I got there, it was very interesting because I didn't feel out of place, right? Like, even though there was not a lot of Puerto Ricans there, everybody there felt like they came from somewhere else. And I didn't feel foreign. I, I felt like I fit right in because I also came from somewhere else. So I could go to the store and speak Spanish with people. And, uh, and that, that made it better. Um, then I started making connections with the families of the youth that I was mentoring and directing. I started making connections with the people that I was uh, interviewing to create our place because the Albany Park Theater Project creates plays based on people's real life stories. So one of my roles was an ethnographer. I would like bring out teams of young actors and interview people in the community. And I started making these really beautiful connections and understanding all the fights that, that people were fighting, all the struggles that were um, being battled here in Chicago, and they were very familiar to me, right? I don't want to talk too much about this, but I went to some of your plays, uh, and <laughs> they, you, it's not like you were putting on, I don't know, a production of, an Albany Park production of Rent or something. It was like no. you were writing the plays, right? They were based on the experiences of people in the community, and it was about issues like foreclosure, issues about uh, people's undocumented status, mm -hmm. um, I have a very vivid memory of sobbing at both plays that I went to. I think it was the foreclosure one and Homeland. the immigration in Homeland. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it was rough, I have to say. Yeah. It was extremely moving stuff. Yeah, but most of, most, of the, most of the script for our shows actually were direct quotes from the stories that people will tell us. Uh, but I think with that when I when I started working at uh, Albany Park Theater Project, I'm going to say APTP, so I don't have to say <laughs> that that long name. Um, they were already creating original plays based on people's real life stories, and mostly it was immigrant working class people from the neighborhood. When I came in, what I think I brought was the idea of interviewing people, not only that were telling their stories of things that were happening to them, but how they were fighting back and how they were creating transformation. So when we started doing the play about immigration, for example, I was like, we need to go interview the people who are fighting. Um, and we, I got involved with the Dreamer uh, movement, EGIL in that time. Um, many of my uh, students who were actually undocumented started going to meetings, organizing meetings. And some of them actually like went downtown to Daily Plaza and came out of the shadows and wrote their speeches about being undocumented and, 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 and not being apologetic and, stay, and wanting to stay here with their families. And that was a really powerful thing. <laughs> to witness. We were creating plays, but we were also making history. We were part of, of, of movements and struggles that were so important um, for the people in Chicago. Right. For folks who don't maybe don't remember, there were, this was uh, maybe what, six, seven Do, years ago, something like that? 20, 2010 uh, started? Oh, 2010. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so these were the uh, rallies, like the undocumented and unafraid rallies mm -hmm. where uh, groups of mostly young people uh, undocumented Chicagoans were in front of mass rallies of hundreds of thousands of people telling the world, I am undocumented and I'm not afraid and I'm going to fight. And so that was a really powerful m moment that uh, that movement spread to the rest of the country, right? Uh, but it, w it had this intimate tie to what you were doing in the theater project. Yes, yes definitely. Um, it, it, when we started going to organizing meetings and interviewing um undocumented youth that were also fighting, um, it, it became clear that 
the strategy was that they needed to say it out loud because they needed protection. And for a lot of the undocumented young people that I have worked with, what has always been told to them is like, you never tell anybody that we're undocumented. That's a secret, you never say that. But then people disappear, people are get caught in raids and then nobody knows where they are and it's impossible to defend them, it's impossible to help them. So that was something that was learning that process and it was something that motivated a lot of the young people in the company to just come forward and, and start fighting and, and trying to belong to a movement that was actually trying to change things. So we go from those experiences that you have as the, at the Albany Park Theater Project uh, and sort of fast forward where now uh, you are running for city council. I am. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I have to say, uh, wait, okay. <laughs> I have to say that uh, usually if I would think of a person, the kind of person who would run for city council, uh, who would choose to run for city council, you are not that person. And I mean that as a compliment, not as a, as a diss. Okay. Because <laughs> the, you, are, you are not the kind of person who is like, I am the one who is uniquely talented and moral and charismatic and... You know, I'm the one. No. <laughs> uh, in fact, I remember over the course of several years, I've known you for a while, and I remember over the course of several years, people saying to you, like, Rosanna, you should run for city council. And you're like, oh, please oh, no. shut up. Stop it. Stop that. Uh, and But but so people had to kind of drag you into even, yeah. like, wrapping your mind around this as a as a possibility, and people from social movements specifically. Yeah. Um, so, so can you just, just talk a little bit about that decision to run for alderman, how that happened? Well, I definitely didn't want to be the one. Um, it's a really scary thing to do. I don't think that I am somebody that has been groomed for it. Like I don't have any connections. Your father <laughs> wasn't the, the city no, council member yeah, in your no, ward. No, my father was definitely not connected to any of this. Um, so at some point, um, somebody that I was organizing with, with um, 33rd Ward Working Families, which we, which we will talk in a little bit about what it is, um, actually asked me, uh, he said, you, sh you should run, you should run for alderman. And I thought he was joking and I just laughed about it. But then it seemed like other people were talking about it and several people just said it to me. And I, I said no for, for a long time. And then at some point I, I also started thinking about the, the moment that we're living in. I thought about how angry I, I have been about what I see and, and this feeling of not being able to do enough. Um, and then I asked myself, so why, so why are you saying no? And of course, the, the first thing that I would think about is, well, it's scary. It's a really big responsibility. Um, and then I started thinking, well, it's also not a place where I have felt invited to be ever. I, I feel welcome in spaces where I organize with people and we try to figure things out and fight for things. But places that actually involve political power, like a seat, like an aldermanic seat, like an institutional space of power, I have never felt compelled, invited to be in those places. And I started thinking, well, we don't occupy those spaces enough. People like me don't occupy those spaces enough. Um, and then I started thinking about it. I started thinking, well, maybe it is time for us to be occupying this, those places. Maybe it is time for us to be taking over those places. And, and the thing that motivated me the most to do it is that this was not about me. People were not telling me, oh, you would be ideal to run um, as, as a person because of your personality or whatever. It is because I am involved in fights and struggles and movements. It is because I have a connection to the neighborhood that I live in, the community that I live in. Um, so then it started making sense. And then at some point I consulted with the theater company, actually. I asked, I told my young people, um, that I was being drafted to run. And I asked them, so what, what do you guys think? And they got so excited about it. And they, I felt like they were actually hoping that, that I was going to do it. So here I am <laughs> running for the 33rd Ward Alderman. Um, 
I, I don't want to talk about it for too long because it might not be of, of, super, of super interest for people outside of Chicago who are, who are listening to this on the podcast. But I think a very important part of the story is Tim Megan from a few years ago. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, Tim Megan was a CPS teacher uh, in the 33rd Ward at yeah. Roosevelt mm-hmm. who uh, ran for alderman and came very close to winning. Um, and through his campaign, I believe that was where the kind of uh, basic infrastructure of the 33rd Ward working families came from. So can you talk about yes. his campaign a little bit and, and as well as 33rd Ward well, working t- Yeah, Tim Megan was the first one to dared to, to do this. And he was um, a history teacher at our community school, Roosevelt High School. And a lot of the young people in, in the uh, theater company had been his students. Um, so I, I had a connection with him. Uh, through that. And Tim Megan loved his school. He loved his community. He loved his union. He was so devoted and excited to be able to make a change. And um, several of the people that I've been organizing with for a very long time since I moved to Chicago got involved in his campaign. And then I also had this connection that the kids loved him and wanted to get involved as well. And uh, so I volunteered for the Team Megan campaign. I became a part of his campaign. And we were 17 votes away from a runoff with Deb Mel for the first time in I don't know how many years, how many, 60 years, <laughs> we, we, we were um, 17 votes away from a runoff. And, and that was a really big achievement for a campaign that was so grassroots. Like, we, we actually didn't... The people that were working in that campaign have been organizers and activists for a very long time, but nobody had actually organized a political campaign, and we got really far. And uh, so after the election was over, uh, Tim really wanted us to be able to to have an IPO and continue to fight in the neighborhood. That's what we did, and we founded 33rd Ward Working Families. And you say IPO, an independent political independent political organization. Right? organization. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so Tim uh, then went back to teaching, and he a lot of the things that he didn't want to happen happened. The budget at Roseville got caught again. Um, he was laid off. He had to move to Minnesota. We missed him very much. Um, But Tim, with that campaign and daring to do something so big, paved the way for us to be able to do this now. After the campaign was over, we started 33rd War Working Families, and we have been working in the community since then, um, organizing around issues like uh, immigration defense, uh, defending tenants that are being evicted, um, and uh, rent control. Just to say one more word about Tim, I feel Tim Megan really, he was a rank and file activist of the Chicago Teachers Union. Yep. He came, you know, out of the, you know, out of the, the CTU strike in 2012, out yep. of uh, the most vibrant social movement in the city of Chicago. And he like threw himself into this campaign. And I think the city of Chicago and Chicago public schools punished him for being That's such a, true. Uh, yeah. an activist out on the front lines of all the stuff. He was writing op-eds in the Sun-Times about austerity to the, to the CPS, austerity, like to budget cuts to CPS. He, of course, did this campaign. And I, and I, I think that, you know, the, the district might have wanted to teach him a lesson to, Definitely. Uh, to drive him out of Chicago. And they succeeded in doing that. So. Uh, that's a very important yep. part of the story to mention. Again, shout out to Tim. Shout out to Tim in, in Minnesota. <laughs> we love you, Tim. <laughs> so talk a little bit. Uh, you know, that was the last time around. That was 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Talk a little bit about the the race now. Um, you have talked. You mentioned Albany Park. It's this working class, uh, majority immigrant neighborhood, uh, Latino immigrants, but also folks from all over the yeah. world, really. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about the neighborhood now. And, and, and you know, you mentioned earlier how much it meant to you to move into a neighborhood like this when you first came to Chicago. Uh, talk about the neighborhood and, and what, what, you, what you like and what you love about it. Um, well, when I moved to the neighborhood, I, as I said before, I, I felt right at home. I mean, I miss Puerto Rico. I, st- I miss Puerto Rico every day. Like, there's just no way that I, that I don't miss home. But uh, Albany Park became a, a, a beautiful second home for myself. And, and I was embraced by the families of the young people that I was mentoring. Um, 
the mothers of many of the young people that I was mentoring and that are taking care of my child um, while I took care of their children in the company. Um, so I was able to develop this village in, in Albany Park. And um, throughout the years, as, um, as people start getting displaced, um, I have lost some of those people. Some people have had to move. Some people have lost their place in, in the neighborhood. So it's been, it's been a hard thing to watch, to see people that actually want to live there, but they can't afford to live there anymore, and, and they have been displaced. Um, so um, Albany Park uh, has a lot of diversity. I, I'm, I'm raising my child in Albany Park, and he goes to the public library and the park, and he, and again, he plays with children who speaks a myriad of languages, uh, children of all races and ethnicities, um, and nobody feels foreign there. We all feel like we belong. And it is very important to me to preserve that for, for my child and for everybody in the community, for myself, because it's important to me. Um, but things have definitely been changing in, in the neighborhood, and they're changing fast. Uh, we are having uh, several developers that have been uh, buying property in the community and displacing residents. Um, Long-time residents, uh, Silver Property Group, for example, is a, a very good example of, of that process. Um, and it doesn't feel like we actually have had an ally in, in, the, in the Aldermanic office. Um, we have had several moments where um, this has happened. The, the, there's a really good example, the Sunnyside Manor um, tenants. Uh, this is a building that Silver Property bought um, and they gave the tenants 30-day uh, notices. These are people that have lived there for over 10 years, people who have families. Their children go to school in the neighborhood, and all of a sudden they are being asked to just leave. And uh, we went to Mel's office uh, to, to ask her to support the tenants, to put pressure on the developer uh, so that... It could be negotiated. They could get more time. They could get help with cost of relocations, finding affordable housing in the neighborhood so they could stay. Um, and she said that she couldn't help. She receives uh, contributions from Silver Property Group. She has gotten thousands of dollars in contributions for her campaign. And she was not going to side with the tenants. And then through pressure... Uh, these, these tenants organized with uh, Autonomous Tenant Union, which is one of the organizations in the neighborhood that we've been organizing with. And, uh, and through pressure, through call-ins, uh, through going to the bank that is lending money to the developer and showing up, uh, they were able to, to just stay for a few more months. And, uh, and the alderman could have put pressure on the developer, but she chose not to. And th that's an example of the ways in which we are on our own in the world when it comes to protecting our neighbors from displacement and preserving the diversity of the ward. So you mentioned Mel. This is Deb Mel, who is the, Mel, yes. Yes, the alderman <laughs> of the ward. Can you just talk a little bit about her and how she ended up in the seat? Uh, I mentioned that you are not the uh, daughter of the alderman. That is the former alderman. That is uh, yeah. that's something that's not true of Deb Mel. Uh, yeah, Deb Mel is part of a Chicago machine, uh, Chicago Democratic machine um, family. Her father was uh, Richard Mel. Um, he was in the seat for 38 years, and his last term, he retired in the middle of his term and left the seat to his daughter. So they have a sort of a dynasty. You know Sound, that sounds democratic. <laughs> the funny thing that happens in Puerto Rico, and when I moved here, I thought that that didn't happen. I was like, really? That like mayors in Puerto Rico do the same thing, and it was really also crazy. like kings in the 14th century or whatever did that <laughs> I know, too. Exactly. So. so it was it was it was really interesting to me when I'm like, wait, that happens here? Oh, it's Chicago, and that's how I started learning about <laughs> Chicago politics. Um, yeah, so she's been um, now the alderman um, 
Yeah, since, since then. And um, she represents the mayor and the neoliberal agenda that the mayor has pushed for Chicago. And uh, yeah, she sides with developers. <laughs> there was a profile of you in the Chicago Reader, uh, the alt-weekly newspaper. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I believe the reporter called Mel to ask for a comment about you. And Mel said... I don't remember the exact quote, but it was something like, I've never met her. Yeah. She's never come to any <laughs> events. I, I'm That's not true. aware of this person. She kind of gave you the, the Mariah Carey treatment. The, like, <laughs> I, I don't know her. Uh, which, And then I think your campaign, like the next day, put up a photo of you in her office. I remember you like, had a hand on your baby stroller, and you're like... Four feet from Mel. Yeah. Uh, and it was, a, it was an My action. Child is looking at her like this <laughs> <laughs> in the picture. So uh, maybe she, maybe she you know, blocked out that memory maybe, of maybe you confronting did. her in her office. Yeah, but it seems she like did. she may be familiar with you that from is, the past. All of that is true. The picture came out and, uh, <laughs> and I am definitely in her office. And that was actually one of the times that we went to her office to try to get support for the, the, the Sunnyside tenants. And uh, so can you talk about some of the other big issues in the ward? Uh, you mentioned affordable housing. What else is a big issue? Um, well, affordable housing is, is a big one. And affordable housing, it, it's important, uh, in my opinion, to, to look at everything that that encompasses. Like right now, we have a government uh, at the federal level that is run by white supremacists, and uh, they have a really horrible anti-immigrant agenda. Every time that we lose affordable housing in our ward, we expose undocumented people um, to have to move from the ward and go to places that are less safe, uh, where they can get in a raid, uh, they can be deported. So I always like to talk about how affordable housing also is about immigrant rights, right? Um, Immigrant people and documented people have a right to be in our neighborhood, and, and not having affordable housing puts them at risk. Um, schools. Uh, so the ward has lost about $3 million um, for public schools in the ward since Mel uh, has been in office, uh, which is really sad. Um, I don't think that she is fighting so that we can have the schools that we need and deserve. Um, she has been pro um, the COP Academy, and she is very into um, these we call police signs. <laughs> she really likes them. <laughs> um, um, and the, there's this $95 million COP Academy um, that we don't need, and that is money that we could spend in so many other things for our communities and to meet the needs of, of everybody um, in the city. And it's, it's being uh, drained to, to give to a police academy. And we, we also went to her office and we tried to get her to vote against the COP Academy and she completely ignored us again. Um, and she voted for the COP Academy, um, which is, it's, it's, it's a really big deal. We can talk about uh, public safety issues in a second, but uh, you know, you obviously talked about a lot about the issue of affordable housing in the neighborhood, and I believe you've signed on to running on uh, the uh, the lift the ban campaign, which is about uh, lifting the statewide ban mm -hmm. on instituting rent control in Chicago, so that the city could institute rent control, right? Yes, thirty um, third uh, ward through thirty third ward working families, we were part of the lift the ban on rent control campaign, and we were able to get it on the ballot um, on the referendum in March. It was a non-binding referendum, but uh, we got seventy percent of the vote in favor of lifting the ban on rent control in in the precincts that um, that got the item in March. And that was a really big achievement. We did that by canvassing. We did that by knocking on doors and talking to people. Um, and we do believe that that is a, a really um, is a real alternative. To, uh, to deal with the affordable housing crisis. So we've talked about what's going on in the ward. I want to talk a little bit about what the citywide vision is for the upcoming elections because 
even if you win this election, uh, there will be a pretty extreme minority of socialists and independent progressive aldermen on the city council. Uh, mm-hmm. There are 50 aldermen on Chicago's city council. There is one other alderman who identifies as a socialist, Carlos Rosa. Mm-hmm. And there is a progressive caucus that, depending on the day, depends on how progressive they are. <laughs> and um, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if you ask them, they would all give a very coherent answer. Yeah. Uh, but there is this ostensible body of, of independent uh, progressive aldermen. And even if everybody wins who, you know, everybody who's already a part of that caucus wins re-election and everybody who's endorsed by United Working Families, which is um, another uh, uh, the kind of political arm of the progressive wing, I would say, of labor and community organizing groups in Chicago, even if all of them win, you'll still be a very small minority on the city council. So it's not like you'll be able to put forward uh, a bill and just assume all of your people will fall in behind it. You'll still be a, a strong minority on the city council. So what is the the broader progressive vision for the city that you see yourself as a part of? When you said you would be a pretty small minority, <laughs> what I thought was like, aren't we always <laughs> a small minority? But somehow we do achieve a lot. And I think uh, that the broader vision is to build people power. If every person that gets elected, if there's a group of us, even if it's a small group that gets elected to city council and we are able to build people power in our wards, in the way that we are doing with 33rd Ward working families, in the way that um, uh, uh, the 35th Ward is also doing, we can achieve a lot. So I think um, building people power is a crucial thing um, for us as as elected officials. I'm saying that. <laughs> I'm calling myself elected official already. <laughs> But um, there are there are many many things that that we need to push for, and these things are are things that already groups on the ground are pushing for. And I think that the most important thing is to listen to the people on the ground that are organizing and that already have an agenda um, of things that that we need and that we can fight for and that are very concrete, so that we can get the city that we need and deserve. So definitely police accountability, uh, no cop academy, fight for 15 and a union. Those are basic things that we need and we need to continue to fight for. And there's already movements in place fighting for these things. Uh, Carlos Rosa, who is the 35th Ward Alderman, uh, often talks about feeling being or being accountable to the movements that he serves in office at the behest of the movements. Uh, that 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 is who he is ultimately uh, accountable to. Uh, do you share that Definitely. feeling? Yeah. And, and it's the reason why I'm running. I, I'm not running representing myself, right? Like I'm running because I am part of a broader movement of people that are fighting for change. And, and I am a part of that. Um, and that's how I, that, that's how I see this campaign. It, it is to take over that seat and those resources so that we can use it for the benefit of the many. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned the No Cop Academy campaign. I think public safety is going to be a major issue in this election. We, Isn't it always? It, it, al- <laughs> it always is, but uh, you know there are a lot of people who think that, for example, the reason that Rahm Emanuel is not running for a third term has to do with the Laquan McDonald mm-hmm. trial and that he was worried that he would not be able to pull out uh, a, a, a victory in a, in a third running for a third term. This is going to be something that is talked a lot about on the citywide level. Um, what, what do you have? What, 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 what are your besides the, the no cop academy stance? What do you think about how we should approach public safety and police violence in the city? Um, when I think about safety, when I think about the things that make me feel safe, I actually think about a community where I know that I can knock on my neighbor's door because we organize together and we're trying to make things good for all of us, right? I, when I think about safety, I think about having schools that have all the services that our young people need in order for them to be okay, that there are social workers and counselors and there's a nurse and and they feel safe and there's after-school programming and they are able to develop themselves and their skills so they can be successful. 
Um, when I think about safety, I think about mental health clinics. Why have we closed all of these mental health clinics? We need those mental health clinics in order to feel safe. When people need those services, they should have them. We need access to health care. These things make me feel safe. Um, but as a woman of color in this city, as somebody that has worked with youth of color in the city, I don't feel safe around the police. So I don't understand why we continue to give 40% of the city's operational <laughs> budget to the police who don't make me feel safe and don't make most people that I know, they don't feel safe around the police. Our immigrant, undocumented immigrant families, they don't feel safe around the police. And that's a lot of people in my neighborhood. So what are we using this money for and why? Um, so I think that what we need to be doing with that money is strengthening the public services that are actually going to keep us safe. Uh, that's, I think that should be our approach to, to safety. I think that we need more social workers and less cops, definitely. You told me previously that when you worked at the Albany Park Theater Project, it wasn't just a theater project. You kind of had almost like wraparound services mm -hmm. within the project itself for your, for your students, right? And then that, uh, does that inspire your vision of what overall we, we can do to make this uh, a more equitable city? Definitely. When I came from Puerto Rico, after not having any materials in my classroom, I get to the Albany Park Theater Project and they give me a credit card. <laughs> and I don't understand. I'm like, wait, what do you want me to do with this? They gave me a credit card so that I could get any materials that I needed to do my workshops. Um, I, I could get any materials that I needed. Um, we had tutors that would come twice a week. Uh, to work with the with the young people after the work the theater workshops, uh, we had a college uh, guidance uh, counseling uh, program that ensured that the majority of the young people in uh, in Albany Park Theater Project would go to college and graduate by the age of twenty five. Um, we had a fully stocked kitchen and I would actually go and buy food that was nutritious and when the kids came from school, they could make themselves a meal in the kitchen and I knew that they were going home and they had dinner and they were not going to bed hungry. Um, we had um, a behavioral health specialists that would come sometimes uh, whenever we needed to address a crisis with a student and we would refer students to people that we trusted to have therapy. Um, it was a pretty comprehensive project. It was a holistic project that took care of the whole individual. And uh, I don't understand why we can't just do that. Like, we know how to do it. We know that when we put resources um, and we make them available for people, they succeed. They get what they need. So we know how to do this. I think that people are actually pretending that they don't know how to do it. <laughs> because why are you giving the money to the police if you can actually have these services and prevent young people from having to be out in the streets? I don't understand. I really don't. Well, why would Not you... that I don't like the street. I actually love love the street. <laughs> you guys know what I mean. Well, why would you give the water <laughs> to the the U.S. military exactly. pool when people in Puerto Rico need to drink it? it exactly. Really so make it's, sense. The, the, these are our resources, right? We we need to own them. We need to claim them. They belong to us, just like the water in my neighborhood. We need to claim these resources if we want to build a society that is worth living in. Um. So speaking of that kind of society, you call yourself a socialist. You're a member of the Democratic I Socialists do. of America. And mm -hmm. obviously there is this uh, larger socialist wave happening all across the country that manifests everything from uh, people getting elected like Carlos Rosa or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. but also uh, kind of street level movements. Uh, around all kinds of issues in all kinds of you know cities, fifty thousand members in the Democratic Socialists of America across the country. Um, so why do you claim that label, and what does this idea of socialism mean to you? Remember the story about finding the valve and and the water. The people who found that valve were the socialists in my neighborhood, <laughs> and they. <laughs> 
<laughs> so my father, um, my father was a leftist and he was uh, pro-independence. And then he hung out in the neighborhood where he had like uh, two cousins and two other neighbors and they were socialists. And my dad was maybe like the most moderate of them all, but he still hung out with them. So he was considered a socialist. And the word socialism for me was around since I was very little. Um, so to me, the socialists were the people that organized in the community so that we could have things like schools and uh, a, a basketball court and, <laughs> and they organized a festival in the neighborhood. And it, 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 made, it, it always made sense to me that we all came together to organize, to get the things that we needed. That was something basic that I learned early. And that is something that I have called myself from very early. I was in college in Puerto Rico and I was an activist there fighting against privatization. And always these people were the ones that were at the head of the movements for those things. It was always a socialist around. Um, and when I moved here, I continued to call myself a socialist. And at the end of the day, what I believe that it means is that because we are humans and we exist, we have the right to a good life. We have a right to the resources that we help create because we work. Most of us are, the majority of us are working class or poor people. This is the majority of us and we create the wealth and we, we create everything that we have and we don't have access to those things and that doesn't make any sense. So to me, being a socialist means to fight so that we can benefit from what we create. We need... We need the public services that we have been talking about throughout this talk, but I, I think it also means power, building power, because in the system that we live right now, a lot of times we're too broken to be able to fight, or we're too underconfident, or we're scared, and coming together and realizing that this is actually possible, we can do this if we come together and we fight for it. So building community power and building people power, I think is at the core of what I believe socialism encompasses. Having access to the resources that belong to us and organizing so that we can fight for them, so that we can have the lives that we deserve. Great. Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez is a candidate for Alderwoman in Chicago's 33rd Ward and a member of Democratic Socialists of America. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once remarked after summing up the theory of communists in just four simple words, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week usually twice, this week thrice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this podcast going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.